talk about when we know how to talk about this. What is that? Girl, right on. Girls, I like them fat, I like them tall. Some skinny, some small. I got to get to know them all. Yeah, I love the things they know. Love the things they show. Got to be where they go. Hey, how's it going? This is Champagne Sharks. This is Trevor on Twitter. You could find me at Ricky Rawls, R-I-C-K-Y-R-A-W-L-S. And we have with us a special guest. Um, Dee Mills will probably be joining us um, later on, but right now we have Jessa Crispin. Hello. And tell the people who you are and what you do. I am a, uh, a writer and cultural critic, and I recently published a book called uh, Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. And uh, where can people find you, either online or on social media? Um, I'm at jessacrispin.com. Very, very clever of me to, to think of that one. And um, on Twitter, I'm at the book slut. And then, you know, you just, I'm Googleable. <laughs> okay. Is the book slut still active? Like, I, I used to read the book slut um, pretty often, but I thought it was not active. Is it still being updated uh no it, it shut down about two years ago i guess um but uh i'm too lazy to change my twitter name so oh okay okay um before we actually you know what? i'm going to save that for later because there's an article in the books that i really like you didn't uh write it yourself but it was something i was going to ask you about but because it relates to something in your uh book but i'll bring that up later but your book why I am not a feminist. Can you give us a quick summary of it? Um, sure. So it's basically about what I see as being the sort of misguided um, face of feminism or the sort of primary central movement of feminism at, at the moment, which is, you know, that kind of um, middle to upper middle class, um, women's march, pro Hillary Clinton, I watch girls, um, you know, a uh, part of feminism that is mostly about uh, consumerism and personal success and uh, aspiration and not really about being able to criticize or even, you know, let alone uh, restructure society in a, in a sort of more egalitarian way. And one of the reasons why you ended up on my radar was a lot of the things you say in the book, I read the book, uh, a lot of things that you say in the book kind of correlate to how I feel about this kind of bourgeois anti-racism that's become kind of very in vogue, where it's just about, we don't really want to change the table. We just want to seat at the table. Exactly. And yeah, you know, it's, it's okay to bomb brown countries as long as you have like 13% black people at the table and 50% women, you know, deciding which brown countries get bombed in 
that type of farce. So there was a lot of overlap um, in the book that I liked, but I also liked how you took race in and showed how in some places there's a divergence where, you know, it doesn't always correlate. For example, you discuss about how in your field publishing, white women kind of dominated, but then there's this kind of weird mode where it's like they're telling women of color or queer women or poor women, let us finish, you know, getting our foot even more in the door and they were coming back for you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a sort of standard feminist line of, you know, we need to focus on equality for women and by which they usually mean white women. Um, and then we will create a sort of fairer future. Um, so then we can start thinking about all these sort of, you know, um, the other demographics that are being left out. Um, which never happens, of course. Uh, once you get a seat at the table, you tend to protect your seat. Um, and that came out of, that particular thing came out of a, um, a controversy within publishing that probably didn't get very far outside of it, but um, where women were complaining about, or, you know, there was this this personal essay by a woman writer talking about how she's written her entire career to try to please men and just realized she didn't have to do that. And it's like an upper middle class white woman. Um, mm. And um, Marlon James, um, uh, he wrote a response saying, well, writers of color mostly have to pander to white women because that's who the editors are, the publicists, women who work at magazines, et cetera, et cetera. And women literally told him to shut up. And there were essays about it saying, you know, how dare you question this? Um, just, you know, how dare a man, even a man of color, silence a woman, a white woman. Um, it was really reprehensible and there didn't seem to be that much, um, sort of self-awareness going on. Um, so that's kind of how I started thinking about that. It was, it was amazing to watch for, um, for about a month, just hysterical white women just being so um, naive and not thinking about what they were saying at all. Um, all right. Yeah. Um, Martin James, um, I know who he is. I don't know about this controversy, but he's a Jamaican male writer he won the booker prize and and stuff he uh wrote what's that book you wrote a brief history of seven killings right yeah yeah so, so he's it's funny that they would dismiss him so easily he's not like just somebody out of the blue he's somebody that's pretty uh established what i wonder is how do you think he would have been received differently if he was um a black woman um i think it would have been pretty similar um there have definitely been um, incidents with things like the, um, the hashtag yes, all women when that was happening. Um, and so this was like the, a couple of years before the hashtag me too, which was about sexual harassment. This was something about, um, yes, all women have experienced sexual violence in their lives, which I was very, I was very um, anti this whole hashtag uh, in general, but uh, specifically, it was a sort of performance piece of tweets performing your uh, sexual trauma, and it was mostly again white women, 
And when a couple women tried to point out that actually uh, women of color experience a disproportionate amount of um, sexual violence, uh, much higher rates than white women, um, white women literally said, you know, why are you trying to silence me? Um, Mm. And so I think that it's a... I don't think it has to do with um, Marlon James's gender. I think it's just um, a certain segment of feminists don't like to be questioned on their behavior, their attitudes, what they're thinking or saying. There's this expectation that because I don't know, because we've experienced oppression and um, well, you know, (laughs) as far as, the amount of oppression that a lot of these women have experienced, I, I, I feel like is, is negligible. But um, at the same time, the, if you have experienced oppression, you are somehow um, um, freed from responsibility or consequences that that gives you a kind of free ticket to behave like a monster at any at any given moment. Something you mentioned that I think is very Something you mentioned that is very um, interesting just now, you know, where you said like the oppression is negligible. I feel like online, this is thing that's been happening. I'm not sure what the root of it is. I can't say it's why it's been happening, but I feel like there's something that I call flattening the field where people will just talk or write something and put a think piece and just mention like six things that are of various levels of severity mm-hmm. and whether intentionally or not, it kind of creates the impression that they're equal. Like to, like to give an example, there is this um, thing going on in the culture right now of calling out sexual harassment in the wake of Weinstein mm-hmm. and all these other revel- revelations that have come out. And then people will just all come out with their own me too stories, but, they're all getting elevated equally. So you get things from serious gang rape being mentioned in the same breath as being texted too much by a, a guy, which is not to excuse the latter. That's still bad, but it creates this weird kind of insensitivity that I think just kind of almost ends up trivializing things. Yeah, it does. Um, and I wrote a piece for The Guardian that isn't up yet, and I don't know if they're going to publish it or not, but uh, kind of on the subject of how, okay, if we're going to seriously deal as a culture with um, sexual violence and uh, sexual harassment in both sort of interpersonal relationships and in professional relationships, um, then we need a place to do it that's not just the public sphere that's not just in the media and in social media because it has that flattening effect of where there's no line between serial predator and guy who did something stupid once right so the consequences are being handed out in this very arbitrary way um and you're also getting you know i, I we're opening up the space for false accusations, because the consequences now come just at the accusation for first, or it's beginning to happen that way. Um, that doesn't always happen, but basically, all you have to say is, um, this guy did a thing, and then um, he loses his job. That's happening now. 
Um, yes. yes. And- I have a big problem. I just want to say real quick. I have a big problem with that uh, believe women hashtag mm-hmm. because I feel like it's become just kind of a way to performatively just organize a witch hunt in a way because I totally believe that you should not disbelieve anybody. You should give everybody a full um, shot at making their um, at making their case, mm-hmm. presenting their proof. You should never disbelieve anyone. So I totally believe in don't disbelieve women, but this becomes this kind of thing where people will just make that the beginning and the end of the analysis of the claim. They'll just say, you know, believe women, closed door. And something that you mentioned in the book at one point, you mentioned that, you know, black men have been disproportionately hurt by an idea of just automatically believe women. That's like the number one exonerations of DNA evidence. Right. And so we need to find a place, a forum to adjudicate these accusations. And I don't think that the justice system is um, going to be it because of uh, because it's a nightmare hellscape. <laughs> um, yes. And, um, and has historically not taken violence against women seriously. Um, and also is biased um, against um, defendants of color. So we can't just sort of like shove everything into that already broken system. But the system that we're using now, which is just um, rumor and social media accusations and so on and so forth, that's not going to get the job done. So something has to sort of take its place so that we can take these stories seriously and not just do what we're doing, which is having a kind of knee-jerk response of, um, okay, well, there are these accusations against you, so you have to lose your job or, you know, whatever. I just want to take this chance to introduce our co-host, D. Mills. Are you there, D? Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay, Jessa, thank you for it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you for joining us. And I'm sorry I joined in late. I was having some technical difficulties, but I think we're over that now. So I'm here and I'm listening and learning. Uh, something I was wondering, Jessa, do you think that maybe this um, Believe Women moment that we're in is a necessary overcorrection to a culture that just was very overly dismissive of women like maybe it's just something we have to go through in the dialectic to kind of end up in some better place i hope not i mean i hope that the response to bias is not more bias of a different of just a different sort i would hope that there's a way that we can um you know There's definitely a dismissive attitude within the feminist community toward men who might be caught up in false accusations and so on, because it's, you know, the greater good. Um, I don't, I don't believe that that's, I don't, I don't think that the way we create a more fair society is by deciding, well, we just have to be unfair for a while. You know, I don't believe that, um, you know, it, right now it's it's very sort of trendy and funny and cool to make guillotine jokes. It's like the French Revolution was a nightmare. Like, it's yes. so, let's not even joke about that. Let's 
learn the lessons and mistakes from the past and not talk about executing our rich in the public square. Like it's not actually the solution to our problems. Um, but it, there is a kind of thing where if there's not an opportunity for justice, then there's an opportunity for revenge. And so the way to deal with this situation is to create the opportunity for justice and not just to resign ourselves to revenge. Now, what we were yeah, saying yeah. with the people of color thing and the women of color, uh, did you see what happened today with uh, Lena Dunham? Because you did mention yeah. girls, too, and that uh, woman of color accused accused one of the male white writers on a show of rape. And she basically dismissed it. Her actual uh, tweet was... She had two tweets because the first one uh, earlier this year in August 2017, uh, she said, things women do lie about, what they ate for lunch, <laughs> things women don't lie about, rape. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was on that believe women, no questions asked tip. And then when this um, woman of color accused one of her writers of rape, then she came out uh, today with, I believe in a lot of things, but the first tenet of my politics is to hold up the people who have held me up, who have filled my world with love. You know, so she basically said, okay, um, in your case, we're not believing women. <laughs> right. Wasn't there some, uh, this, there, I think there was some sort of longer statement she made somewhere else. I don't remember where it was, but she said, I know things that are not in the public domain. Um, so, so she apparently knows some sort of background information about the, but even just to suggest that it's like, well, I know something about this bitch. So <laughs> yeah. I have reasons not to, not to trust this allegation or whatever. That's really shady. Yeah, suddenly, That's really. Right. Suddenly context is important to this whole process, right? <laughs> right. When it's my friend. Yeah. Then we yeah, have to look at the the information, but anybody else, like, burn them at the stake. Right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Because even if you do think context matters, it's very telling when you think uh, context matters, you know? Exactly. So, yes. It's kind of a good example of that. Of Sometimes when you release something out there, it kind of comes comes back to bite you because she kind of put herself in a position where she said you have to always believe no matter what. And now she's kind of unveiling herself as a hypocrite. But then again, to be honest, I think she should stay off of Twitter in general. She's just not very good at it. I don't understand why she keeps coming back to she it. She always but... ends up putting her foot in her mouth one form or fashion. Yeah. I think well, she's, she's weirdly masochistic. I think she kind of gets off on it somehow. I don't know. Like, uh, but she's that's also a whole like different... not, I mean, she's not a, Thinker, right? Mm, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, she definitely wouldn't be guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't under, I don't understand why she's part of feminist culture at all. Why anybody sort of considers her to be that um, in in any in any capacity? Because she's there's nothing about her other than she calls herself a feminist uh, that's in any way feminist. Yeah, and that's uh, something that you discuss in your book a lot, but it doesn't really take much of anything to uh, be considered a feminist now. And there was, there's a nice passage here that I uh, highlighted that I think speaks to this. She goes, 
You say, if anything, that pose, I am harmless, I am toothless, you can fuck me, is why I find myself rejecting the feminist label. All these bad feminists, all these Talmudic, can you be a feminist and still have a bikini wax discussions, all these reassurances to their male audiences that they don't want too much, won't go too far. You know, we don't know what Andrea Dworkin was on about either. Uh, Trust us. I really like that piece. I really like that uh, section because um, to give an example, like I saw uh, Lauren Duca and she was talking about, uh, she did these tweets She kept going on and on about, hey guys, you know, I can be pretty and a girly girl, but still be smart. Watch out. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but it yeah. was just a whole bunch of tweets like that. And then she had one tweet was like a picture of her, uh, like a promotional tweet. And she was reading a book upside down. And it was kind of trading on the image, you know, like, <laughs> oh, look, I'm just a dumb, I'm just a dumb girl, but you know, I'm actually smart. And her brand is called like thigh high politics. That's why she created this column. Oh. And the picture is like these thigh high boots. So it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sexy, but watch out if you debate me, I'm no politics. And it was kind of weird to me. I'm like, you kind of, um, perpetuating, uh, stereotype even as you're trying to supposedly tear so, it down because was, the, I think was it, it deliberate yeah. the the fact that she had the book upside down was in that photograph was it a deliberate thing oh <laughs> oh yeah 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 she was she had the book upside down and she kind of had like a ditzy look on her face but it was it was on purpose like she was trying to be i guess like kind of ironic and the fact that she just does it so much you know she'll be like Hey guys, I like to watch makeup tutorials, but you know, I also uh like to read politics. And and it's very performative, and to me it was very much for the male gaze. Oh in a way that kind of made me uh I was like, how are people not like seeing seeing through this? But I get the joke, but I just like what I want to ask uh you, Jessa, is like, do you think this perpetuates stereotypes against women, or do you think it's like ultimately harmless because at the end of the day i'm a guy I, I feel like it's not really my place to say what is or isn't um an acceptable well, stereotype or not right i mean i don't think she's you know killing feminism or anything i i just don't think that that's um i never understood why lauren duca is in our lives i never understood why she's um famous now because she was because she was she was on tv for a couple of minutes and and uh, anyway um but no i mean this sort of thing is prevalent in feminist culture the um jessica valenti is like this lindy west is like this um all these very sort of mediagenic um feminists who basically just have opinions on the Wonder Woman movie <laughs> um, and don't really have any sort of deep um, interaction with actual feminist theory or history. Um, they're just here to present a sort of soft, harmless feminism um, that is still sexually available, that is um, 
you know, um, they're trading on their looks and on any sort of actual political belief system in order to advance their careers. And, and that's what they're doing is you have to, you know, if you want to be a feminist spokesperson, you have to be Gloria Steinem. You can't be Andrea Dworkin. You have to be fuckable. You have to be pretty and uh, safe. And you have to be, you know, present yourself with men. Um, you can't be the one, like the crazy person who doesn't even wash her hair anymore, talking about how marriage should be abolished. Um, and that, you know, with, uh, the different, the different levels of, of power between men and women that consent in sex is almost actually impossible. Um, and so it's, you can't be that person. Um, and so I still see feminists now. Um, using the radical second wave edge, like uh, Dorkin and Firestone and, and the other sort of thinkers, as a scapegoat or as a sort of straw person of, um, you know, that was when feminism went too far. And we promise we're not we're not like that. And can you elaborate on Dworkin? Because I thought you had some pretty interesting uh, insights on her in the book about how she's kind of a scapegoat. Yeah. Actually, you know what, you know what, let me um, read a, read a, the specific passage I'm talking about. And then you can, you can elaborate it. You said what makes feminists uncomfortable about Dworkin and McKinnon and Kate Millett and Valerie Solanas and others was that she demanded that women think hard about what it was they were participating in. That's it. By participating, you are in a way condoning the institution that activity, that way of life, not only condoning, but propping up. And you mentioned also the all penetrative sexes rape thing. And I wanted you to kind of elaborate more on what Dworkin did and didn't believe in and how you think she got unfairly scapegoated. Well, Dworkin, Dworkin sort of, um, dug her own grave a little bit, um, in that, she was so um, against pornography uh, that in the 80s, she sort of teamed up with some conservative Christians in an effort to uh, to get pornography banned. Um, and so that's where people sort of... Um, but that was just a, a, a small part of her career and what she wrote about. But for whatever reason, people have used that as a reason to uh, dismiss all of her work. Um, but basically, so Dorkin was very interested in power dynamics. And so she has this sort of infamous book, Intercourse, where she writes about um, sex between men and women. And because of the power imbalances, uh, what that does to consent, what that does to romantic love, um, and just tried to get everything up on the table, right? So that book is always dismissed as being, she says all sex is rape, which she never, she, she doesn't say. But she, what she's trying to do is to get you to notice that love is as much about manipulation and, um, and about um, disempowerment and about, um, you know, um, 
what's the word that I'm looking for? Entrapment, kind of, uh, as it is about, oh, I love this person and and they complete me and et cetera, et cetera. Like you can't divorce the power dynamics from the romantic setting. And people don't want to hear that shit. People don't want to hear that mm-hmm. when they're in bed with a man that there are, you know, uh, that there's manipulation going on, that there's, um, that you're carrying not just your own history, but hundreds and thousands of years of patriarchy into that yeah. dynamic. Um, I'll say, I'll say this. I, I know one way that people try to defend her is say, oh, she wasn't saying that all sex is rape or whatever, but I'll say something that I think a lot of people probably won't find popular, but I think even if she was saying that, I don't even think it's the worst thing in the world to say. No, I don't think it is either. Yeah, yeah, because because I think if you're a heterosexual man and you're a heterosexual woman and you're being honest, there is something vaguely kind of rapey about almost all really hot sex. Like think about the things that people say when they're caught up in, in the moment, the of, moment. And of course, yeah, you say things like you know, like take this pussy or you know, whose is this? And that's kind of rapey sounding. Like you know. Yeah. You're in that moment and you're just vomiting out whatever comes to mind. It's all, you know, about like, whose is this or take this or, you know, who's a slut. It's, it's, it's like stuff that people don't like to admit about themselves, like where where their mind goes. But I wouldn't say it's rape, but it's at least on that spectrum, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's, I mean, Jermaine Greer kind of pointed out that the, even the, the sort of basic language of um of sex which is um men fuck women are fucked um disempowers women immediately so it's sex is something that happens to you if you're a woman um Mm. and that kind of it does like when you are sort of a sexually active woman who's heterosexual you know you are presented as kind as crazy if you express desire um you're supposed to be coy you're supposed to hide it you're supposed how does that um line up with things like affirmative consent if you as a woman are told your whole life growing up that you shouldn't present yourself as sexual sexually available you shouldn't pursue men you should be pursued all of this kind of stuff you should pretend like you're not into it um in order to uh entice men then how does that how does that not lead to rape? How does that not lead to uh, confused consent? Um, and so these things are almost impossible to entangle, particularly because no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to talk about their participation in uh, this dynamic and perpetuating this um, horrible rape culture. And I hate the word rape culture um but yet it's there is an element of rape in basic sexual dynamics i agree and i think i think if you can't say that or acknowledge it it kind of creates these weird gray areas where uh, i'm not talking about the outright uh totally bad stuff that people with any common sense know you know, is off balance, but I'm talking about this kind of gray area where people are like, am I being 
assertive or am I crossing bounds? Is this being coy or is this like, you know, a definite red light? And I think by pretending that there isn't some type of rapey dynamics in just regular consensual courtship back and forth and how the game, the courtship game is structured in a patriarchal society because patriarchy structures it so that women can't be too willing. They have to right. put some kind of token resistance so that they don't, they're not sluts. And men have this Madonna whore thing, but they kind of want her to be something in the streets, but, you know, a slut right. in the sheets, you know, that, that whole thing. When you don't acknowledge it, you have these guys where people just kind of thinking, hey, I'm, is this a sign that I should just keep pushing past the resistance? Or is this a sign where I should say no and just stop? And by not acknowledge. Yeah, go on. I was going to say it certainly makes for some some confusing social dynamics and social interactions um, because I know like even right now, you know, with the whole controversy about street harassment and things of that sort, um, a lot of what I hear from guys is, you know, I don't know when is it appropriate for me to even approach a woman if they say just the mere act of approaching a woman or doing certain things to get her attention so that I can begin a courtship process is considered, you know, harassment or even a part of rape culture. And so now we're having, we're at this point in society where it seems like um, we, we just have some very confusing uh, social scenarios being presented in, in a manner that we haven't seen before. Well, I'll add something. Right, and then I th- Wait, I'll say one quick thing. I'll add something to what um, Dee just said, and then I'll pass it to you, Jessa. But there was a woman who put in article well she was talking on twitter i can't remember her name but she was she was a writer and she was talking about she complaining about old men presumably old black men she was a black woman about how they do uh street harassment and she was like yeah these older black men you're old enough to be my uncle stop the street harassment you know i didn't invite you to come i didn't i didn't uh do anything for you to think it's okay to approach me. And then later on, and I think you might've read this article, D mm-hmm. she did an article praising uh, white men in <laughs> yeah, Europe for being open-minded because of uh, how they're so quick to approach her, you know, as a black woman, she described this fairy tale story, but what the guy was doing in the story was textbook uh, street harassment. He came right. over he saw and a was, woman that was attractive you know, and he wanted to, he was being speak to her and, and being and, assert, right. And she found that attractive. Yeah, and it's, yeah, and she, but she praised it. And also, I guess because of the racial difference, and maybe because of the perceived inferiority that sometimes black women feel, you know, white supremacist society. She felt it was like flattering that this guy was not taking no for uh, an answer. And I think it's, it's an example. How sometimes the context does matter. But uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Jessa, I cut you off before. Oh, no. Um, no, I was just going to say that there was an article by um, a white woman, Jessica Valenti. Um, she had written this whole book about her history of street harassment and of being just a sex object and how it made her feel degraded and everything like that. And then about a year later, she wrote a thing about how she didn't get street harassed anymore and how that made her really sad because it meant that she wasn't you know, she was too old and she, she wasn't seen as beautiful anymore. I was just like, okay, lady. Like, I understand that we're in a time where we have to rethink all of these things. And being uncomfortable and being uncertain is great. 
because it means that now we have to ask, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, but, but, but at the same time, like if you're going to sort of decree what should and should not happen, then you need to get your shit straight. Um, and you need to deal with, you know, your unconsciousness. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, I wouldn't mind the contradictions and, and if she acknowledged them. Because it might make for an interesting article. Like, I used to think this. Sure. Now I have these weird conflict, conflicting things. What does that mean? Let me see if I can, like, you know, resolve it. And that doesn't kind of happen anymore. But nobody ever does. Yeah. No, yeah. nobody nobody wants to admit that they have ambivalence. Um, so everyone's presenting themselves in one specific way and the ambivalence comes through, you know, accidentally. Yeah, I think sometimes we have these preconceived and set uh, standards that we try to abide by and then reality hits, you know, and, and we have to find a way to scramble and adjust to it because, you know, well, what do I say in this scenario? I'm actually attracted to this person that's, that's, you know, quote unquote, street harassing me. And so, you mm -hmm. know, I've been saying all this time that this is incorrect, inappropriate behavior, but now, you know, I'm kind of attracted to this person. So, you know, I like it now all of a sudden, how do I deal with that, that tension and that contradiction and what I believe versus what I'm accepting to happen? And I just think, like you said, um, we're at this weird place in society now where like our some of our most str uh, strongly held beliefs are kind of being challenged and, and we're being forced to reevaluate some things. And like you said, ask some uh, some serious questions now. So I think it's a good thing. And I don't see, you know, I don't see women sort of volunteering to take up half of the burden of romantic and sexual pursuit, right? We, we, when it suits us to be passive, we remain passive men still in order to, uh, for the most part, you know, speaking of generalities, um, men still have to do the approaching and the pursuit and all of that kind of stuff. Um, women aren't, aren't doing it. I mean, Bumble doesn't count. <laughs> um, so it's not, um, we have to, women have to start thinking about how do we take some of the burden and create space for men to be sort of, uh, receptive and not always, uh, the active participant, um, and to talk about these things within romantic and sexual dynamics, um, in a way that it, it doesn't just suit mm. us. I agree. Yeah, I, I think something else that happens to, well, not something else, because I'm actually just repeating something you said earlier in the hour, but this is this, this is weird that you kind of trade on the current dynamics of rape culture when it can suit you, but you also want to be against it when it doesn't. When, when I say you, I just mean like uh, in, in general, both men and women. Mm -hmm. And the example of like, I'm using my sexiness to make you take me more seriously. My sexual availability, I should say, because sexiness is too broad. I mean, my sexual availability or whatever. And, but then um, you also don't want to acknowledge their rape dynamics, both in consensual sex, both in how, uh, being made to look sexually available is incentivized and encouraged um, by both men and women who find it works in their favor. And 
what I notice is there's a lot of that that happens with anti-racist stuff too, where there's like, okay, I don't want to be a stereotype, but if I can kind of code switch or act a little ghetto, but still show I'm intellectual. Like, so the same thing that like Lauren Duca does where she goes, oh, look, I'm just a little girl with thigh highs and short shorts, but you know, I'm also really smart. You know, there's, I know this is like this new wave of anti-racist writer where it's like, um, yeah, you know, I'm comfortable in the hood and I'll just, for no reason, just use slang and what's a serious conversation, but I'm going to use academic terms too. Uh, Adolph Reed uh, mentioned it in that piece, What Are the Drums Saying Booker, when he was talking about the new wave of Black public intellectuals, and he mentions like the obnoxious code switching. Yeah, I think it's pretty standard now in, I mean, you know, with, with feminism in particular, um, it's always about, um, not sexual, not sexual availability, but weaponized. Yeah. Yeah. Weaponized sexuality is probably, yeah. Um, is probably a good phrase for it. Um, it's about personal ambition. It has nothing to do with, um, the cause. <laughs> it's really just about um, I. I want to advance my career, and I don't. I don't care what stereotypes I have to play into. And that's the thing is like, well, if I can make my oppression work for me, um, then I'm certainly not going to try to dismantle it. Which is why beauty standards have remained the same, and 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 so you know, so on and so forth, um, has remained the same for women because a lot of women can make that work for them. Yeah, like, have you um, heard of a book called The Man Question by Kathy Ferguson? No. What is it? Uh, it's an interesting book. I'd read it. Um, I didn't read the whole thing. I'm still, I put it on pause to read yours. But she talks about how there's different types of um, feminism. And she says, like, there's, like, I think the three categories were, like, praxis feminist. And that's, like, the kind of probably the second wave falls into where it's a lot of intellectual and academic stuff. Mm -hmm. And there was the third one. I'm forgetting what it, what it is. What is, okay. There's practice feminism. There's linguistic feminism, which I don't remember what it is, but there's a third type called cosmic feminism. And she describes cosmic feminism as um, her example of cosmic feminism was Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider, mm -hmm. where it's like, it's interesting because I think it does both of what we said, but with race and with um, females. Because one thing you mentioned is how, this is what you mentioned in your book, right? You, you talk about how there's a stereotype that men have created about women that, you know, they're more empathetic, they're more feeling, they're more whatever. And then women have kind of taken that and kind of bought into it and started selling themselves as that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, what she describes as cosmic feminism is this idea like, Oh, Audre Lord, I'm black. And you know, there's a magical Negro trope in the white imagination, right? Where, Oh, us white people, we're a little bit too in our heads. We're too intellectual, but you black people are kind of, more in tune with you know nature and have a higher morality than us. You can be what shows us our way, you know, um, 
we're not going to you for anything intellectual because at the end of the day, you're still black. <laughs> you know, intellect is is white, but you can uh, give some emotion, some some soul, some gut to you know our feminism. And what happens is a lot of uh, black women kind of end up buying into it and selling their own feminism like that. Mm-hmm. And I started noticing too with the what's that guy Jesse Williams. Um, he had that speech where he was accepting an award and I thought it was a pretty good speech. And then he ends it with something that like I hated. He said, um, just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. And it's like, who said we're magic? That's something that white people created about black people. Like, why are you like, even to reclaim it and weaponize it as a good thing kind of, um, disturbed me. Yeah, there was, um, on, one of the sort of uh, main responses to the uh, sexual harassment um, media frenzy is, well, we should just let women run everything because we don't ever harass anybody. I say, okay, <laughs> let's not, <laughs> let's not be this stupid. Let's think about, you know, but people were saying it sincerely of, well, women should just run things. And I know that there are certain things that women don't do. Like women at the, at this point in time are not doing the mass shootings, right? right. Um, but I don't believe that women um, wouldn't <laughs> do the mass shootings if they were raised in the way that men were in this sort of like um, this unbounded violence and encouragement of violence and aggression and. Um, the, the sort of romanticized um, male figures of the cowboy and the the renegade and the vigilante, you know. Um, so I think if women were raised like boys were, um, we would have more women mass shooters. So I don't think that we should just put women in charge of everything because I don't think that women are better people. Um, we're just not encouraged um, to be sort of sexually aggressive and violent in, in the same way that men are. And that plays out in, in, interestingly in society, because as we look at the headlines and see everything that's been going on and in, in, with uh, the entertainment industry and things like that, there's also been over the last few years, you know, and who knows if, I don't know if statistically it, it's actually been an increase, but certainly anecdotally looking at the news and things like that, of like um, the, fem- the the women teachers being accused of, of sexual assault and and um, mm-hmm. rape of their their male students. You know, we've seen it seems as though it's been an increase in that type of thing, but we don't look at it as pandemic in the same manner that we're looking at these uh, sexual allegations with what's coming out of Hollywood right now. Right, and there are you know even in the past year there have been. There was uh, Thinks, the um, the company that makes menstrual products. The woman, the woman CEO, was brought up on. Um, there was a lawsuit oh, because she was that, sexually yeah. harassing. Yeah, and then you know, Nasty Gal had a very similar situation. So it's not that women don't abuse their power; it's they would have had limited access to power to prove that they are as big of assholes as men are. So let's not let's think about power and not gender. <laughs> that's a good. That's a great point. That's a great way to look at things because power certainly does things to. Go ahead, T. 
No, I think I think it is kind of changing too because I started. I have like you start hearing whispers now about like you know some women, yeah, and you used to not hear that before. Like I remember, you used to never hear whispers about a woman who you say like you know watch out, don't be around around her. And I've been like in workplaces now where they'll say, hey, you know that woman don't uh she says anything to you don't uh be anywhere alone with her or whatever which was like weird I, that used to never happen before you know, in, you, in you're right because i've heard i've heard similar things so yeah it seems like it's it's a new thing now but you know who knows yeah i always think about it as a black guy too because i think you know hey i don't want you know if anything happens I automatically don't have the benefit of the doubt, so I don't want to be. <laughs> so I think I think as a black guy, you get extra appreciative of those like warnings. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, there's a passage here where it's where it says, "The idea that women are naturally more empathetic and nurturing originates with men. They used it as an excuse to keep us at home tending to the children. They use mm. it as an excuse to dismiss us." intellectually don't try to be smart sweetheart it's not your strong suit and yet we adopted this belief because it suits us to believe it about ourselves it makes us special and i really like that passage because i think you because when you show how it actually it seems complimentary it makes you feel special but there's kind of a insulting flip side to it and it served the power structure to sell that flattering uh myth and it makes me think about how when you tell black people, oh, you know, you have a better morality than us, you know, we need you black people to show us the way. What they really mean is you take the high road more than we do, which we like because it lets us get away with more. We would not, if we were in your shoes, we would have torn everything down by now. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, the same way they try to sell like Martin Luther King as, oh, the best thing about him, no matter, despite everything he did, was his forgiveness. That's what you sold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How he's turned into like a, um, you know, onto a, a, a inspirational quotation on, uh, on Twitter or on social media. Yeah, exactly. Um, or, or, or a way to pacify any mad black person. Like, you know, uh, what would Martin Luther King say to what you just said? You know, it's just a shaming mechanism. It's really um, interesting. And I like that you had that in the book about yeah. how sometimes the things that you kind of claim as, what makes you better than people in a way is actually something that was actually used to keep you in your place. Like dismiss us intellectually. That was a very um, great passage. Yeah, and it made yeah, me think, cause I tried two books. I tried two books uh, that I was not crazy, about. I couldn't finish them. One was Roxane Gay's bad feminism, bad feminist. And the other mm-hmm. one was, um, Audrey Lord's Sister Outsider. And I felt they both kind of did the same thing, but Sister Outsider did it, I think, in a much more uh, academic sounding way. But they both kind of said like, oh, these these dumb theories, these books, all this um, uh, over-intellectualized feminism, you don't really need any of that to be a good feminism. You can just, you know, take a walk and get in tune with nature and you know, be in touch with the natural rhythms of the earth. You know, that's more in the case of Sister Outsider. And in the case of Roxanne Gay, it was more like, you know, you can go on a Buffy message board and 
that's still a form of femi- feminism. And it's, the way I was thinking is like, if everything is feminism, then like nothing means anything. If, if, if everything is rebellion, then like, then like nothing is rebellion. Yeah. I mean, if all we had to do was go take a walk in nature, then the world would be <laughs> fixed. Right. So it's, it's ridiculous to think that we don't need to think about things. Um, you know, I, I feel like um, there is so much of that in, in contemporary feminism of resisting any, any sort of work and just believing that um, you can just sort of stumble upon being a good person. And I had this argument with a man recently um, because I had sort of called him out publicly um, for some stupid shit that he was saying about women. I have trouble believing um, you would call somebody and, out publicly. <laughs> and he emailed me. I was like, oh, what the fuck is this going to be like? Um, and he, you know, objected to my portrayal of him. And his argument was, well, I was, um, I was raised by women and I have very uh, strong women in my family and I've witnessed violence against women, family members. And so I can't be the misogynist that you're portraying me as because I've just had these experiences. And I tried to get him to read some stuff. I have black friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I have, I have a mother, I have a sister. I don't see what the problem is. Um, so I tried to get him to read, um, a particular book because I thought that it would illuminate his behavior back to him. Um, and he would, he refused to do it. It's like, you know, I, I can just be a decent person. He's like, I don't need to read a book about race to not be racist. I was like, yes, you fucking do. Actually, you actually do because this stuff is ingrained in us from birth. You can't just sort of like, just decide to be not racist, to be not a misogynist, et cetera, et cetera. You have to do the work. And part of that is work through your unconscious um, beliefs and behaviors. And part of it is intellectual and you have to do both. Um, and anyway, he got mad at me and he, he doesn't talk oh, to me. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, yeah. I can't say I'm surprised. Yeah, now that he... No, me neither. Jess, I wanted to ask you something, um, and I missed the first few minutes of the uh, of the beginning. So forgive me if 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 uh, T had already asked this, but um, looking at the title and of uh, your work and and um, some of the things that you discuss regarding feminism, I was curious to know, like, what what is the response to you been uh, from the uh, larger feminist community? Because I know you know, and I've even made this mistake myself is usually when I hear a woman say things like, you know, why I'm not a feminist. A lot of times it's associated with like um, women who are kind of hangers on with like the MGTOW, you know, men going their own way movement or the men's rights movement and things of that sort. So they start adopting a lot of, you know, um, they, they start almost becoming apologists for, for those movements. But you, you're not in that category. But I was just curious, do you get that a lot when, when people approach you? Or, or how have you been received in the larger feminist oh, community? Well, yeah, the whole internalized misogyny thing. Because, yeah, those, right, those MGTOW right. hanger, hangers on that you talk about, they do legitimately have internalized misogyny. Internalized misogyny, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, most of the response has been that was negative has been one of the complaints was that I didn't tell people what to do. Um, so I didn't present a vision of feminism for them to step into. Um, and I was like, that's not, that's not my job. Like I'm not, I'm not electing myself the new feminist spokesperson or the feminist guru. Like that's, that's your fucking job. I'm just trying to hold a mirror to your behavior and you can decide what you want to do with that. Um, but the other thing I got was a kind of just a, how dare you, um, response of, you know, women have it so hard. <laughs> and, um, so how dare you criticize your own people, basically, how dare you betray the sisterhood? How dare you, um, you know, men are the enemy. We should be, you know, we should be dealing with that. Um, but I think that, you know, part of my, my project that I'm, uh, this is what I spend my time thinking about and writing about is how do we understand how do we understand that we are the oppressor sometimes when so much of feminist literature has been about oppression how we're being oppressed so much of feminist literature is this is how society is against us this is how um, this is what you're up against. This is what men do. This is what the U United States government does. And it's all against you. And you are the victim of the situation. That's 99% of feminist literature is just a list of things that are done to you. Um, and so how do we understand, how do we get out of that mode and understand that we are actually, a lot of us, the oppressors? in this particular situation. I mean, even in, if we're just looking at American society and we're just looking at like upper middle-class white women, we are fine. We are for the most part, we're fine. Um, so how do we understand that we uh, prop up systems that oppress the poor, the marginalized, um, et cetera, et cetera. Then if we're looking on like a global scale, all of Americans, are the oppressor because of, um, because, you know, as, um, the philosopher Bruce Robbins pointed out, you know, the major American export into the world is violence. So how do we understand, how do we begin to understand our position, not just in American society, but in the, in sort of a global society? And so how do you turn your perception to that? And so that's what I try to do. And it's kind of weird, too, because there's this new trend of paying lip service to intersectionality, but then you have no idea what it actually means to these white women. Now, mm -hmm. I'm talking about a trend among white women, because even like Hillary Clinton started putting out tweets, or probably more likely her intern, put out a tweet about, um, you know, intersectional, intersectional, but and all a lot of her uh, white feminists fan base you know were parroting it like oh yeah hillary's intersectional but then as soon as people critiqued hillary for a passage in a book about using prison labor mm -hmm. which is like predominantly like black men suddenly everyone like gets gets mad like um people were actually <laughs> making defenses like well hey it's a job 
or you know, <laughs> prison gets boring. Yeah, what like else people are people really saying? They're too. happy doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, they're what are they going to do? Sit in a, yeah, they were happy doing it. It's boring in a cell, and like people were actually, you know, saying this stuff. That makes you think. Okay, what does intersectionality even really mean if you can't actually bring up um, that a white woman can be an oppressor at times? Mm-hmm. It's just a buzzword at the end of the day when that happens. I don't think that I don't think that most people who use the word intersectional have any idea what it what it means because there were there were a couple times when I was on my um, when I was doing events where someone would say um, there would be a question from the audience that would be is your feminism intersectional and I asked them what do you mean by that. Um, because I was, I was curious. I just wanted to know what they thought they were asking me and no one could really define the word. Um, and no one, and I, and it's, you know, there was this one particular incident where it was like a, you know, like a 18 year old girl or something like that. And she's just kind of like hemmed and hawed. And I was like, are you asking me if I'm pro trans rights? And she said, yes. (laughs) I was like, that's not what you're asking me, but yes, I am. (laughs) Like, um, and I and I specifically avoided using the the word intersectional in my book because I don't feel like people know what it means, um, and so they they assume that they do. But I try not to use words like that that people assume they know the definition of, but don't actually. Which is unfortunate because I use patriarchy too without, and I don't think that most people know what patriarchy means. I find a lot of times people mistake patriarchy for like misogyny, you know, and they right. kind of use yeah. the two terms interchangeably. Yes. Go ahead, T. I didn't mean to cut you off, bro. Well, no, the, I mean, to say on your point, too, yeah, the uh, it's kind of like how people kind of use um, being a bigot as the same as institutional racist. Like, you know, I could dislike somebody's race, but it doesn't mean that I can practice institutional racism. Like, yeah, same thing with misogyny and patriarchy, things that get used uh, sloppily. Mm-hmm. But... Um, there was an article called How to Know if Your Feminism is Intersectional, and it was at Bustle. And this is what I find even more nefarious, because at least with you, these are students who kind of, you know, didn't really think. And we've all been uh, students, you know, high school, college, where you're just kind of getting politically aware and everything's a little fuzzy sometimes and your enthusiasm gets away with you. But Bustle is supposed to be like a feminist magazine that's... Uh, diverse so people will probably like, trust it and how it describes um intersectionality it says here's a checklist right first of all it says it starts off with how to be a better ally which i hate like the whole ally centered stuff yeah. but it says it includes people of color okay so that's one step it includes lgbtq plus people okay it includes trans and non-binary people, okay? It doesn't ignore people with disabilities, okay? Then it says it's body positive, and it shows, like, people of different sizes. It's sex positive. It doesn't speak out of turn. It isn't just centered around yourself and people exactly like you. So that's it. It's just a checklist of different identities. So probably the more identities you have, the more intersectional you are. So it's just like additive. Like, you know, if I am black and a woman, but you're black, a woman and queer and overweight, 
you get the mic before me. Mm-hmm. And when I actually started reading um, some of the original academic intersectional stuff, it was a lot more nuanced than that. And I was surprised at how a magazine that's kind of presenting itself as you know, a feminist magazine is spreading this uh, misinformation. Like, because first of all, they all mention class. Uh, a lot of the original academic literature, this thing didn't mention class at all. Right. Like the the idea was not to just be identity based, but to think about identity and class and power. And instead, they just made intersection into counting identities. So mm-hmm. it's this identity politics cubed. Yeah. And it sounds like to me that it takes on uh, almost a type of redundancy because if I heard it correctly, they said it includes LGBTQ and all this stuff. And then it, and then the very next uh, phrase, it says it includes uh, transgendered. Well, isn't transgendered included in the LGBT uh, definition that you just gave earlier? I mean, it seems like there's some sort of redundancy there that I would, I, you know. Yeah, I think there's a rush to be so exhaustive in the identities listed and just keep adding to it that, yeah, it probably does lead to a lot of redundancy. like a lot like, of, like you said. Go ahead, go ahead. And it, it, yeah. I think it's become a retreat to go deeper into identity politics as opposed to what it originally was, which is to get out of the limiting frameworks of identity or yeah. class. It, or, it seems like you know, it's become a thing where you show uh, your level of activism by how many abbreviations you know or how many of the buzzwords that you can repeat as opposed to having actual knowledge of the subject matter and and being able to articulate, um, you know, what your goals are and what you hope to accomplish in in advocating for these specific uh, disenfranchised groups. So if I can say, you know, if I'm, I'm meeting with a group of people and I say, you know, um, we want to make sure that we're inclusive and respecting the rights of LGBTQ. Uh, we throw the word intersectionality in there. Make sure you uh, throw in some verbiage about um, the disabled. You know, you just go down this checklist of buzzwords and phrases and, and you know, everybody's like, oh, yes, this person is good. They're in, you know, as opposed to looking at any real um, sort of uh steps that have been taken to incorporate any kind of real change. Um, it just seems like you just, it's kind of like a, do you know the, the, all of the code words? Right. And because what is it, what does it mean when it says, does it include LGBTQ? Like, does it just mean that you, you know, some, <laughs> right. some lesbians does it like, or you know, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is this kind of brilliant thinker um, on on this particular subject about how the left has not incorporated um, a queer population. It just has assimilated a queer population. So they argue for marriage equality because they want queer people to behave mm. like straight people, right? So give them yes. the right to marry. Not take on a queer criticism of the institution of marriage, et cetera, et cetera. 
just let them get married so they'll you know they'll be quiet <laughs> or how safety nets or how safety nets aren't protecting the most vulnerable like queer people like there's a high teen queer uh runaway rate and suicide rate mm-hmm. or lack of um resources like counseling to help them through the issues and it's funny because you said um about this article while you were talking because you asked the question i looked to see what it said under that heading mm-hmm. uh, it includes lgbtq because under each heading it gives a, dis- a description of what it means and it has a picture of a girl from um mtv uh it said jeff and she's just making a list of different types of women that's all she's saying she's just naming them and then under it it says um it recognizes things like homophobia and heteronormativity persist regardless of laws on marriage equality <laughs> for example the way female sexuality is stigmatized in a culture where being straight the presumed norm is problematic and and it says a little bit more but all it mentions is kind of etiquette like uh just don't be rude when you talk to people who are gay or queer they make it into a lifestyle thing there's no actual platform you know it just says uh even though marriage equality has happened you know some people still are insensitive so just make sure not to be uh insensitive when you talk to gay people yeah i don't think that insensitivity is the is the primary obstacle that queer people experience in their lives like i just don't think that that's yeah exactly exactly everything here is interpersonal and individual it's either how to turn the lens on yourself you know as like self-help or individual or how it deals with your you know interpersonal one-on-ones like you know make sure you didn't offend somebody of one of these groups when you were talking to them and it's um i can see the appeal of this type of intersectionality because it just all becomes first of all it centers the yeah it centers the ally you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. basically it's all about, hey, you, ally. Hey, you, ally. Are you, um, you know, doing enough? And then the ally gets to be like um, a confessor. Like, you know, hey, I admit it. Um, last week I took a cab from a black person. Uh, I stood in front of them and I waved the, and I waved the cab. I could have been better about that. <laughs> Oh man! I mean, like I, I find that with this podcast, like, like sometimes people reach out to me and they'll be like, you know, hey, teaching about my my white privilege, and I'm like, oh, come on, dude, you, you like I've have better things to do, like just and, and you have a great passage here uh, toward men, uh, <laughs> just I thought it was very good. I'm sure you probably got the chapter uh, D. Listen, the chapter is oh. called "Men Are Not Our Problem," and I so identified with this chapter because it's kind yeah. of what we're talking about with white people a lot. Yeah. And it says, uh, it's a long passage, but it's worth reading. If I may interrupt my train of thought for just a moment to direct my attention to any men who might be reading this book. And, uh, maybe you picked up my manifesto because you too have some problems with feminism. Maybe those problems are sincere. Maybe you philosophically disagree with my current feminist thought. Maybe you genuinely support the basic tenets of feminism but are confused by how those tenants are currently being expressed. Maybe you've read Firestone or Dworkin and dealt with the feelings and thought thoughts they evoked. Maybe you've sorted through your own fear of weakness and vulnerability. 
Maybe you've examined the ways you have in the past projected those feelings onto women. Maybe you've dealt with your discomfort with femininity. Maybe you have given space in your life to softness and beauty and love. Or maybe you tell yourself you are enlightened and sensitive, but really it's just that you are uncomfortable with women acting like they are autonomous human beings. Maybe you want a woman writer to tell you it's okay to think women are stupid, illogical idiots, and that feminism is the embarrassing farce you deeply need it to be. Maybe you are looking for any excuse available not to take women seriously. Probably you are somewhere in between. Either way, it's possible you have some questions or concerns with what I've written here, and you would like me to address these for you. If so, this is my response. Take that shit somewhere else. I am not interested. You as a man are not my problem. It is not my job to make feminism easy or understandable to you. It is not my job to nurture and encourage your empathy. It is not my job to teach you how to deal with women as human beings. And don't take that shit to other women either. It's not their job. Your lack of enlightenment is not our problem. Figure it out. Do the reading. Feel your own feelings. Don't take them to someone else. Men have to do this work on their own and for each other. You cannot ask women to spend the next century carrying the burden of your discomfort and confusion. Do your own fucking work, gentlemen. And then um, a couple paragraphs later, this is what I like, uh, for punctuation, after a couple paragraphs, says, I just want to be clear that I don't give a fuck about your response to this book. Do not email me. Do not get in touch. Deal with your own shit for once. Now, where were we? So I thought, Bra fucking bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Uh, I I like that part. I identified with a uh, a lot of it. Oh oh, one more sentence, one more part. But for all the space men take up in our imaginations, most of it is space we give them. Mm-hmm. We invite them in and forget to usher them out. Even in feminist discourse, the male audience is always presupposed and catered to. Okay, I'm done. You know, it's funny. I did these um. I did some public events for the book and I would make an announcement before we opened it up to the audience for questions that men were asked not to speak, that this is a public forum about feminism. And so they should just listen and they should not ask questions. Um, And at every single event, um, some man would come up to me after there were a couple events where men like, you know, went up to the microphone anyway uh, and just totally disregarded what I had to say. But at every single event, a man would approach me after, usually corner me physically um, and demand to know why I did not allow them to ask a question. Um, And I just would just, I would say, all right, until they went away. Like, I feel like you should allow men to speak. All right. I think that this is uh, reverse sexism. All right. You know, until they would just go the fuck away. Um, but it was amazing Good to move. me. It was amazing that they didn't have the self-awareness to be like, why am I upset about being asked not to speak? Why do I think that I have the right to hold a public space in a conversation about feminism and women's rights? You know? And media kind of encourages it because, for example, with this uh, Weinstein thing, they had, uh, I was flipping and God help me, I stopped on, I think, CNN, and they had a panel and then it was one woman, 
uh, on the panel. It was a black woman. It was a white woman interviewing. And then the other space went to that actor, Matt McGorry. And I was like, why is he here? Like, I don't even understand. Like, that's a space that could be given like, to another woman to talk. I don't even understand, like, why. And I was thinking, like, even if myself, if I had made my bread and butter, for some reason I thought, hey, I want to be Mr. Ally. That's my thing. To me, I would think, okay, what's the best thing I could do? Oh, just get out the seat and let a woman talk. Yeah, like, you know, let a woman talk, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he so he's so he's there and then what he was saying none of it was technically wrong what he was saying. He was saying, you know, oh us as straight men um need to be more cognizant of what you know we're doing and saying to women or whatever. And I'm like, okay, this is technically you're not saying anything wrong or abhorrent, but it's very basic one-on-one level stuff you know like just don't be a monster and you know try not to rape like, like okay okay like <laughs> i don't think we needed you to take up this this space here you know just to say not all men or or hey some you know work out our stuff i'd rather hear something a little more substantive about what can actually change structurally mm-hmm. or whatever to change this and i'd rather hear it from a woman yeah, I don't. I we've done how many? Every time I, I I start the you know the New York Times website, there's some new interview with a man about what what he thinks about the you know let's ask let's ask this male comedian what he thinks about Louis C.K. Let's ask you know this male director or or uh, or actor what he thinks about. Uh, Weinstein or whoever it's why are we why are we asking them who cares who cares what they think right and you know how many uh people who are being accused now um because I you know what I started doing was I started doing searches of like when a lot of like comedians or personalities were being revealed recently I would do a search of their name in the word Cosby and like about three quarters of them were on panels discussing what to do about Cosby, a lot of new accusies. So I was like, well, it's, it was kind of, you know, funny to me that, well, not, not ha-ha funny, but like ironic funny that um, a lot of these people who were, who are coming out in this recent wave of allegations were on panels in various places or had to think pieces about uh, the whole Cosby accusations thing, which I think is another reason why, like, you know, men should not, be on these panels. You can't even vet a lot of these people. You have no idea what their own history is. I know. I hate that. I hate that when I, when I'm scheduling a guest for my own podcast, like if it's a man, I I do extensive Google searches now of, okay, is there any accusation from, you know, 10 years ago? Like I, it just feels like inviting men to speak at all. is just inviting, you know, like it's going to blow up in your face at this point. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, another thing about that passage that I just read from you that I liked is because I've really identified with it about this whole thing about, oh, I want to be your, I, I want you to be my sexism confessor. Like, you know, you're going to, I'm going to tell you about my problems and my issues. And then you're either going to tell me that I'm okay, or you're going to tell me that I'm a piece of shit, which some people like, you know, uh, they, they want to be beat up. And then you're going to give me a penance, you know? And we talk about that a lot with, um, 
the whole current anti-racism movement where there's this real market now, this real hustle where it's like, I'm going to advertise myself as your racial confessor. And, you know, you can um, tell me certain things and I'll give you a pass. And there was a guy with um, Lena Dunham. Uh, We've mentioned him on the show before, but there was when Lena Dunham had her previous run in with racism where she um, she had a previous run in where she had said that thing about Odell Beckham and people, you know, found it very racially insensitive, especially with the history of black men and white women and rape accusations and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was this black activist guy who was oh, man, this guy. on Twitter and he's known for being like uh, a black version of a feminist ally. Like, like he's the black male ally to black feminist women. You know, so so he kind of is very performative with it and everything. So he started doing a long Twitter thread, you know, telling uh, Lena Dunham and and Amy Schumer what's what. And, you know, and then he's kind of spun it into like a black feminism rant and not against um, black feminists, but on their behalf, you know, like this is what people need to listen to black women more uh, and all this stuff. And then. Lena Dunham reached out to him. Uh, his name was Xavier Burgeon or something. Uh, Lena Dunham uh, reached out to him and was like, hey, you know, you're right. Uh, why don't you talk to us and, uh, you know, tell us, tell us um, what's what? And he's like, oh, sure. And then Amy Schumer jumped in and then she was, she was like, hey, why don't you uh, tell me, and too? And then let's have dinner was like, and oh, discuss yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's, let's DM. Let's DM. And uh, um, check check on the page. Uh, see if you see that link, uh, Jessica, because I want you to see the story from the Hollywood Reporter. I just, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, just put. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. still think yeah. that that was her trolling a lot of her uh, black yeah. feminist critics when she pulled that move. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she might. I think she might have. I think she Absolutely. literally went to the black man. And no doubt asked, in my mind. And he, and he just jumped in, and he's like, "Sure." He stopped ranting and everything, and then all the black women got mad. They were like, "Lena, why didn't you write us so that we can tell you?" Uh, you know, why did you choose the black man? So then they turned against him. They said, "Oh, you talked about elevating black female voices," and then. Instead of referring him to a black female voice to be the racial confessor, you took it on yourself. So they were actually competing over this quote unquote honor of, um, oh you know, doing what, what you were talking about in that uh, passage. Did you see the picture? Uh, can you yeah, see the. Uh, yeah, this is really disturbing. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, he kind of turned it into a brand, you know, and then he came back a couple of days later and he was like, yeah, I spoke to them and they're okay now. <laughs> he gave them, <laughs> he gave them their pennies. And then look what just happened with uh, <laughs> Lena Dunham today. Yeah, he gave them their pennies and I guess it didn't, it didn't stick because look what Lena Dunham did, did today. Who's that supposed <sighs> to be in the background? With their hands. Uh, Ellen Barkin. Oh, okay. Because I guess, uh, yeah, I guess Ellen Barkin came. I think people start searching him out now too when they do something wrong to uh... <laughs> to absolve them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's handing out absolution now. It's crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. And what I want to ask you, um, Jessa, because this is one of the places where I think feminism and um, anti-racism kind of diverges. I feel like for the faults you point out in this book, I feel like um, feminist writing, even like the more vapid lifestyle bourgeois feminist writing, doesn't seem as ally obsessed as anti-racism right now. I feel like allies are so centered in um, anti-racist writing now, but you probably encounter more feminist writing than I do. Maybe it's just because I read more anti-racism that I see it. I wanted to ask you, is this a problem that you see happening in the type of feminism you critique, uh, this incredible centering on, on allies or no? I don't think it's as prevalent as it is in um, racism or, or queer. Uh, there's definitely much more of a language about being an ally to, to queers um, uh, within sort of uh, the feminist conversation um, than there is about just being a kind of vague feminist ally. I think that's mostly because... Um, a lot of men who were performing allyship and were getting work off of it, um, you know, to write essays and and so on about it, um, later turned out to be rapists. (laughs) So, um, I think we've dropped, I think we've dropped it a bit, um, and have learned from our mistakes, hopefully. You see a lot of that going on now. Oh, so I think it might have been heading there, but uh, they kind of got burned too many times. Yeah, there was a, there was one particular case that was really big because he was writing for Jezebel and, and kind of like all the big uh, feminist uh, online websites, and and then the rape accusation started, and so um, oh. yeah, that was a couple of years. See, see, but even that still doesn't explain it because so many <laughs> of these white allies have burned um, black people by saying something problematic later, and. It seems like we're still not stopping with the whole white ally industrial complex. Like it's going as strong as ever, you know. So yeah, I I I, I wish there was some kind of self correction that could happen there. Yeah, you know, it's funny that she mentioned getting burned by uh, later on by male allies that turned out to have rape accusations and things like that against them, because you're starting to see that happen a lot in some of the black feminist circles now, where. Um, a lot of these guys are super performative. They, in terms of rhetoric, they outperform even the 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 women themselves, you know. And then it comes out that this person was a creep all along behind the scenes, and so there has to be a purge. There has to be, you know, a public uh, decry of you know agents within our midst and things of that sort. And it's just funny that you mentioned that that was something that uh, has been going on in broader feminist feminist circles over the years. And now it's kind of just now beginning to trickle down into some of the more some of the black feminist circles where they're dealing with the same issue with their male allies. Well, I mean, doesn't the I mean, doesn't the word ally immediately make you suspicious anyway? Like, why is it? Why do they why does anybody need a word? Uh, Yeah, I I agree. if someone comes up to me and says, "Oh, I'm your ally," I say, like, "I don't fucking know you." Um, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. I was in a Whole Foods, and somebody had an ally shirt on. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. She she was wearing. She was an older white lady, and she said, "Like you know, ally is something you know." And then she had like a checklist of all things mm-hmm. she's an ally to. 
all the all you know it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it just basically you, means, at least how I interpret it now in the in the social media age, it just means you know all of the buzzwords. You know how to perform the buzzwords and and things of that sort. But the, the standard that I would. But having it on a well, t-shirt, it's all performative. It's, so it's, it's all like, part of the, you the know, performance. Uh, you know, you have to have the t-shirt and all of that kind of. stuff. Or those guys with a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. This is what a feminist looks like. And like uh, when I see them, like oh, that yeah. would be a red flag to me if I was a woman. I would not want. Yeah. Like I see that in the bar, I'm like, oh. Yeah. No, I, uh, there was a, there were the safety pins, right? Yeah. Too, yeah after. The Trump election of yeah, women, white women wearing safety pins. Um, like just be if you're if you get your shit together, just just be a good just be a good person. Just behave you yourself. <laughs> There's no need to draw attention to how well you're behaving. Just do it. And in a way, I think it almost kind of hurts because I feel like when you give people because the safety pins had homework involved. So <laughs> you get homework. Uh, yeah. There's different levels, and there's a hundred dollar box, and at that box you get assignments and homework, like, like you know, to help you check your privilege and all that Selling stuff. Selling indulgences and now. Huh? So instead of creating, like, um, <laughs> yes. yeah, 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 instead of getting, oh. instead of getting a um, actual thing you can do, I'm like, okay, if you're rich and white and you have money to spend a hundred dollars a month on this box, you could put that money toward like. An organization that's actually like uh, helping feed poor black kids or whatever, instead of like getting homework assignments and stuff. But what was crazy about the whole homework assignment thing is it's it's, it's the most um, self indulgent thing I can I can uh, think of. But uh, but 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 when I say oh, okay. it dissipates energy, it's like if you do that assignment. And then you're done with that assignment. You can almost kind of feel like, wow, I've done my part for this month. And then just go back to watching TV. Like that energy that might have that guilty energy that might have been focused on something that's actually helping people. You've just dissipated it and you've Mm -hmm. kind of given them an outlet to get rid of that cognitive dissonance or angst and... Now you can go back to watching news about people getting shot in the feel street. Feel a little better about yourself. Yeah. Feel fine. You've done your part. Yeah. 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 The the self congratulation part of it is really um, it's kind it's kind of alarming to me. I, you know, I think that we should all be okay that we all feel like shit all of the time. <laughs> I feel like we, there has to be some sort of acceptance of. This feels like shit. Trying to understand your place in society and how you relate to others and questioning your behavior feels like shit, but it has to. Um, and anything yeah. you do to make yourself feel better is should be suspect immediately. Yeah, that was a passage that I highlighted in your book where you talk about univer- a universal feminism where everyone is comfortable. And you say a feminism where everyone is comfortable is a feminism where everyone is working for their own self-interest rather than the interest of the whole. This comfort is not part of the universal feminist agenda. It can't be if it wants to appeal to all women. Universal feminism, feminists want a feminist feminism that doesn't require changing the way you dress, think, or behave. And 
like I really like that part, but discomfort should be a part of it. You shouldn't try to avoid discomfort because that discomfort is what motivates you to action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of this ally-centered stuff and a lot of this universal feminism is all about kind of alleviating that discomfort as soon as possible. Yeah. The thing is, like, there is a a huge part of our culture that doesn't want any limitations on our behavior. Um, that it, everyone is living their own hero's journey. Everybody is the star of the movie in their own heads. Yeah, um, you call it the feminism in the self-help mode. Yeah. I thought that was a good way to put it. Yeah, and, and so it's just about... Um, yeah, aspiration and empowerment and, and, and so on and so forth. And any sort of criticism of how you um, use that power, um, people get really angry. Yeah. And it gets very new agey too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's one way of avoiding having an intellectual argument, right? Is to just descend back into the feelings. Yeah. That was what that book I was talking about by Kathy Ferguson was labeling as cosmic feminism. Like she was saying that it opens up the door to a type of new age feelings based uh, feminism that kind of becomes like a emotional narcissism, you know, that, that kind of, and she wrote it a while ago, but you kind of saw it to me it, with its pinnacle with um, eat, pray, love feminism. Cause I actually read, I actually read that book cause I wanted to be fair to it. So mm-hmm. Unlike, unlike Bad Feminist and Sister Outsider, those books, I might not have been fair to them because I'll be honest, I didn't finish them. They were a little bit into cosmic feminism. In a, I read about the first or third of both books and I was a little turned off. It wasn't for me, but I didn't um, finish reading them. Maybe they got better later on. I will say Eat, Pray, Love. I started reading it to be fair to it because I wanted to uh, critique it, but I didn't want to critique it based on other people's accounts. That's one of the few books that horrified me so much. It actually made me keep reading. Like I, yeah. I finished the book because I was so horrified. I'm like, this woman can't be this um, narcissistic and tone deaf, yet packaging it as new, new age. And mm-hmm. she did. It was the epitome of the type of uh, feminism that you... Um, kind of discussed like very blind to his own privilege like her answer was to travel the world on someone else's dime um and eat pasta and go to like a really expensive yoga retreat retreat and you know that's how like who can afford to even do that type of feminism and it's just all about me 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 and and she gets a boyfriend yeah yeah that's the thing is like it starts with her divorce right she wants to heal from her divorce, and then and she it glazes ends with over her the fact that she cheated. Yeah, she glazes over the fact that she cheated on that guy, right? I know she cheated on him, but she glazes. You have to read between the lines. She's very subtle about it, and she admits that the guy did nothing wrong. She was just bored, and she cheated. But she wants to make this seem like a vaguely <laughs> feminist act to cheat. <laughs> you know, you know, and it's something that you talk about in the book, Jessa, about how when everything is feminism. You know, it's like just breathing is feminism. So somehow her being bored and cheating on someone who was perfectly great to her became a way that she was kind of a victim. Like she was uh, victimized by her boredom into cheating. And it was kind of like a vaguely feminist act. It was really weird. 
No, I've, I've encountered this in my own, in my own life. When a man cheats on me, um, my women friends, oh, he's the devil. Um, how dare he? It's, you know, he's the absolute worst person on, on the face of the planet. When I, when I've cheated on somebody, it's, well, you got it. You, 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 you know, you made you feel good. You did what you had to do. You know, he wasn't, it's just like, I don't think it's both ways, ladies. I think it's, I think there's a standard of behavior and everybody has to meet it. Right. So. Yeah. Our friends kind of have a tendency to do, or people close to us have a tendency to do things like that sometimes, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm going to out myself as a Sex in the City watcher. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now we have to talk about this. Why? Why? <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, well, um, it was a mix of two things. Uh, I thought the first season of Sex in the City, especially because, you know, I live in New York. I thought it was a very good show that first season. But I also think it was more descriptive than prescriptive. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And sure. it wasn't really co-signing the women's lifestyles that much. It was very kind of neutral, you know? And they weren't kind of saying, oh, you should just buy stuff just to, you know, do whatever. I think, like, it kind of got sucked into its own hype as mm-hmm. time went on. And it became, like um really a horrific consumerist uh pop feminist you know nightmare but if you watch like the first season you know they were kind of falling on their face a lot or sometimes like they would fuck up a good thing just by being jerks you know it was it was not kind of really buying into its own hype and i think that when they realized that a lot of people were taking it to be prescriptive rather than than, uh descriptive Mm -hmm. they kind of leaned into it and it just got horrible but then it got horrible in such interesting ways that i just kept watching it (laughs) so that first season i actually liked it unironically Mm -hmm. and then here's my personal theory about the show um the guy darren star is like a a gay man a gay male and i think he was sharing it the creation duties with somebody else right and then that somebody else left and then after that somebody else left um he just gradually made the show about four gay men who happened to be in in women's bodies right right? and um Mm -hmm. right but in that show it just kept getting more and more horrifying like his prescription for what uh being a feminist should be Mm -hmm. right and one thing that's interesting is this woman, Samantha, she cheats on her boyfriend with a rich, powerful guy. This guy is like younger and he's a model, but she cheats on her young uh, model boyfriend with a rich, uh, powerful guy. She goes up and has sex with him, but she leaves the boyfriend in the lobby and in, in his face gets onto like the hotel elevator with the guy. And, you know, goes up with him while the guy's there. The guy waits for her. She comes back down crying after cheating. And he, like, hugs her like something happened to her. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and and it kind of shows, like, he's there for her. Like, like she just feels bad about what she just did. But she just did it, like, five minutes ago. It wasn't like... Oh, my God. <laughs> right? But then... And, and then they got back together and... They were kind of presenting like he was a dreamy guy 
for um doing this. So, so yeah, she she went upstairs to have sex with a guy and came back, and the guy was just um sitting there waiting. And they went on to have a you know boyfriend girlfriend relationship, like you know despite that, and that's supposed to be dreamy. But then uh, in the Sex in the City movie, it got even worse because she starts getting she starts getting uh more and more bored, you know, and then she um breaks up with him um deciding to end the relationship because you know she just wants to go um explore and have more sex and whatever (laughs) and i was thinking if this was gender reversed this would be a horrifying scene yeah you know any of this stuff my reason for watching it is much more primal and less intellectual um i I was fresh out of high school when it first came out and I was still kind of a horn dog. And I had this weird crush, I guess, on Kim Cattrall and her Samantha character. <laughs> so that's well, not really weird. I mean, she, she's an attractive woman. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. But um, so that's the reason that I kind of got into it. Confess. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's part of why I got into it in the beginning, too. It was a fun show, but um yeah. It really got uh, really horrifying to me. I stayed for the horror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I assume you have not much watched much of the show, Jessa. No, I, I've tried to watch a couple episodes. I just feel like these these are the worst people who have ever lived. Like, this is just... I can't, I can't understand You're not wrong. It. You're not wrong. <laughs> But I feel the same way about Elizabeth Gilbert. Like, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by Elizabeth Gilbert. And I think the way that you in the same way that you are with Sex and the City of I'm I'm so attracted to everything that she says and does in in a in a sense of horror. Um, so I read everything, pretty much everything in every interview and every essay and everything, because I'm just like, what's wrong with you? Like but you know it's crazy. How does she still have a following? Like I, I keep thinking, okay, this has to expose her as transparently, destructively narcissistic. And I read something on election night where she was leading some kind of um women's event, you know, and people were still going to her as a guru. And no matter what she does, like it still gets kind of spun as like new age and empowering. Uh, I just remember some extra details to that sex in the city thing. <laughs> Listen to this. Uh, Samantha had cancer. I remember now she had cancer and everything. Not only did the guy support her with her brush with cancer, he even shaved his head when her hair started falling out oh um, to show solidarity. Mm-hmm. Then shaved, then shaved hers, then shaved hers for her. And he did all this stuff. He, um, supported her through everything this is after he waited in the lobby while she went upstairs to cheat and then went to console her after the cheating when she came back down and all that stuff and then like a good relationship (laughs) yeah yeah and then his career ends up taking off as a model right and she decides that she's become bored with monogamy and resents that his career has taken over uh her life because now he's doing better than her so she decides to um end the relationship and explains that she likes being single more than any relationship. And he remains friends with her and is shown like, you know, she just does something empowering after all he did for her, you know, that she was the one that was being like stifled somehow. And what I found interesting was, can you imagine if a guy in a movie had a woman support him through cancer, 
you know, do all this stuff and everything. And then because her job becomes better than his and he's bored of monogamy, once he kicks the cancer, he decides to tell her, hey, you know, this monogamy thing is not working and kicks her to the curb. And the woman is shown as saying, I understand your struggle and staying friends. And it's shown like, you know, it's the guy's journey. The guy just did a hero's <laughs> journey, you know? Yeah. I feel like a lot of HBO shows that have um, a lot of the males in HBO shows and then cable in general tend to do stuff like that. Real, real uncharacteristic or not realistic. I should say from my experience. Yeah. I'm going to mention one last thing, you know, to, to finish up. Um, What do you think about this whole male there's two things I see. There's a male tears thing and a white tears thing mm-hmm. where I just notice like people get excited over anything that makes a so-called white man or a white person cry. And they just say like male tears or white tears and how that's kind of become some kind of catharsis of both feminism and, and anti-racism. I, I, have you been been noticing that? We're like, you know, say like the lady Ghostbusters supposedly you know, everyone was saying, oh, this is a great thing for women because it's making white men mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely been that in in so mostly online feminism for years now of the male tears jokes and the um, all men are garbage, ha 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 jokes. Um, you know, it's, 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 you can understand it in the way of people need a release. <laughs> they need to be able to laugh about the thing that's not in any way funny to them, right? So if they're being abused or hurt or oppressed in some way by men on a regular basis, to be able to laugh at their at, at that situation is is it's a relief, and I can appreciate that. But when it slides into dehumanizing, um, and it definitely does, you know, there was this specific incident where, and I talk about this too much, but I I, I can't believe that it even happened. Um, so there was a scientist who landed a probe on a moving comet, right? So he designed this um, this um, little spaceship and landed it on a comet. Um, and then at the press conference where he was saying, I did the, just did this amazing, <laughs> stupidly exciting thing. He was wearing like this shirt with um, like a like a busty woman holding like a ray gun or whatever. And women went insane and were like, this is what's wrong with the sciences. This is why women aren't scientists, because men like this exist in the sciences to, to always dehumanize women and, and to just remind us that we're only sex objects and et cetera, et cetera. So it turns out that this guy, like the shirt was made by a woman friend of his. <laughs> um, anyway, so he went on TV to apologize um, to say he didn't realize that the shirt was insensitive. His friend made it. He liked the shirt, et cetera, et cetera. And in the apology, when he's talking about how bad he feels that he made people feel this women feel this way, he cried and women feminists were making fun of him, were humiliating him on Twitter and Facebook because he was crying. Um, Oh, wow. And so literal melting. 
Yeah. Uh, so I was just so horrified by by the whole thing. And and that was one of these moments where I was like, you guys are not, <laughs> you're, you're not helping. You're not doing anything. You're just in destroyer mode. And I don't want anything to do with uh, you. Uh, hearing you tell that, it, it made me wonder if we even, and I don't know if we have time to get into it. I wanted to ask you, like, what was your personal uh, journey from maybe where you were before to where you are now? in terms of um, feminism and, you know, how you got there, you know, and initially and, you know, how did you get to where you are now? Um, but I, we didn't even get a chance to get into that. I was curious about that. Um, short, short version of it was I was raised in a very conservative uh, family in a, a very small town in Kansas um, and it was very much, you are going to be a wife and a mother and this is your role in life, et cetera, et cetera. So I ran <laughs> away. Um, and my first sort of job uh, as at 20 years old or something like that, after I dropped out of college was at Planned Parenthood as a, a sex educator, um, and a librarian at the sexual okay. education center and as a, um, abortion mm -hmm. counselor. So it was like a, an immediate deep dive into this is the lived reality of women in a patriarchal system, right? So that was a huge awakening to me to move it past my own experiences and into what it's like for other people. Um, but that gap has always been there between sort of um, the intellectual side of feminism or the media version of feminism and how women always live their lives. And that's always been very um, obvious to me because of the work I did when I was 20. Um, and it just seemed like that gap was growing and growing and growing. And at some point I just couldn't, um, I, I couldn't not write about it anymore. Was there ever a time where you felt you got sucked into um, that type of feminism before you found your way out? Or were you never really seduced into the type of pop feminism that you uh, critique in the book? No, because I think I was inoculated from it. You know, I think that that pop feminism comes out of not experiencing real adversity. So if you are sort of an East Coast um, liberal, you come from a liberal family and you're well-educated and things go easily for you, then your feminism is about, I just want to remove some obstacles between me and whatever I consider to be success. If you actually have adversity, if you actually have people telling you that your only job as a woman on this earth is to give birth, um, and to serve your husband, um, because under Christianity, you know, the husband is the protector and the intermediary between you and God. <laughs> um, so there's that whole thing. Um, then that's some shit that you have to get out from under. Um, and that's hard. So, you know, if, if you don't have adversity, then you can have a kind of light version of feminism. If, if not, then you have to do the hard work of, of understanding um, that you can have a different kind of society and a different kind of life. It's not just about, you know, what you want. It's about um, so many other women are, are living under the same system. And how do we get all of them out from under it? You know, okay, and not, awesome. it's not just about me. 
I think um, I just want to say one one last thing because I mentioned the beginning of the interview because um, people are going to wonder the article that I I said that I've discovered Bookslut through was um, a review of Bad Feminism by Roxanne Gay by uh, Lauren Euler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that and that was how um, I discovered. Um, the site, and then through that, I end up discovering uh, you because you're the proprietor of the site. Of the site, uh, I wanted to ask. This is the true last question. I said the last one was the last question, but I remembered I mentioned I mentioned this, so I have to uh, tie a bow on it. Did you get a lot of um, grief on the site over this review? Because I noticed people are very, very passionate about that book. That's kind of what led me to the book. And when I couldn't understand what was so great about it, I ended up. Googling to see if someone could help me crystallize my thoughts. And this article ended up really crystallizing what I couldn't quite put into words about why I wasn't enjoying the book. And I was wondering if uh, this that article caused a lot of grief for uh, the site. Yes. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, there, are a, uh, there are a couple of sort of sacred uh, women writers who you're not allowed to criticize. And Roxane Gay is absolutely one of them. Um, I don't know who decides that. I don't know how that uh, gets set up, but there are certain women writers that you're just not allowed to criticize. Um, and she's one of them. And we did, and we took a lot of shit for it. Um, and I don't care, you know, by that, by that yeah. point I was immune. People are very yeah. People are very passionate. And, and, you know, to be fair to you, I've seen you say complimentary things about her on uh, Twitter. So it's not like you're somebody with some kind of agenda, just, trying to post every negative thing. But. People are passionate about it until the day comes where Roxanne Gay says something that is uh, off the beaten path. And then, you know, it'll be mm-hmm. open season like they did with, like they did with bell hooks. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any uh, parting thoughts, anything that we didn't ask you that you f- want to get out there? Um, uh, first of all, you have a podcast. I think you should uh, mention yeah. it too. Yeah, it's called Public Intellectual. Um, they can find it on my on my website at uh, com. Okay, and uh, anything else you want people to know about uh, your book and your work that you didn't get to mention during the interview? No. <laughs> okay. All right. So thanks uh, for joining us, Jessa. It's been uh, pretty good. I enjoyed it myself, and I enjoyed it as well. Very uh, thought provoking and just shows me you know as a man that i still have a lot of things to learn and and uh you know i'm looking forward to doing i'm looking forward to the journey yeah and I, for th- sure. I think uh we need jessa to walk us through that journey if you pay it. me a hundred dollars a month i will give you some homework <laughs> there you go <laughs> all right uh, all right jessa uh be good and enjoy the rest of your weekend thanks bye all right sure.